One Sunday afternoon in the 1860s, an early amateur photographer, William Mumler, took a picture of himself. If his story is to be believed, he began to see something strange as his picture slowly began to develop in front of him. It was the image of someone else, a young, transparent-looking girl sitting in a chair beside him, which he claimed to be his young cousin, who had passed away 12 years before. He later wrote that, this photograph was taken of myself by myself on, on a Sunday when there was not a living soul in the room beside me, so to speak. This one photo kickstarted a new career for him, spirit photography. This new craze was even hotter than Beyblades, Yu-Gi-Oh cards, or Phil's TikToks, and people from uh, all over the US flocked to have their portrait taken with a spooky spirit in the background. Many came with the hope that they would somehow connect with a lost loved one. His clients were people from all walks of life, even including uh, Abraham Lincoln's wife, who took this picture with her deceased husband supposedly looking over her. But people did begin to find holes in the strange claim of Mumler's. For instance, Mumler reportedly took a picture of a woman who had recently found out that her brother had been killed in the Civil War. In her photo, the brother showed up in the photograph, transparently standing right behind her, uh, except there was a problem. He later showed up at home, alive. Another time, someone who was visiting the studio recognized one of the spirits in the photographs on display. The spirit was his wife, who was also alive and well at home. She'd had her portrait taken with Mumla at an earlier date. And so not surprisingly, it didn't take long for Mumler to find himself in legal trouble for fraud. But the frustrating thing for everyone, especially the skeptics of Mumler's, is they had no idea how he did it. And so when it came to his trial, he was let off. Part of the reason these spiritual portraits were so popular was because of the dark days they were in. This was a time of death with a civil war and other issues such as the high infant mortality rate, which at the time was about 46% for infants under five, people were looking to find ways to make sense of their often hopeless experiences. And people were fascinated and hopeful in the questions of what happens to us when we die, what the future holds for us after death, what happens to our loved ones when we die, will we see them again? And this question of what's next after death is at the forefront of Martha's mind when she encounters Jesus in our reading from John this morning. Martha is mourning the death of her dear brother Lazarus, who had now been dead for four days. And Jesus offers Martha the good news that her brother will indeed rise again. She will see him again. And her response is this, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Martha, like many Jews of that time, thought that resurrection is purely the future day where people will be restored by God. And in a sense, she's not wrong in thinking this. This was the traditional Jewish view of the resurrection. And up until this point in John's gospel, Jesus had four times referred to a future event of the resurrection. But in this encounter with Martha, Jesus ends up challenging her view of the resurrection. Martha had a incomplete, a restricted view of the resurrection. She had a future-focused view of the resurrection, that someday in the future, God will restore what had been lost, specifically her dear brother Lazarus. That resurrection is bound by time and locked into the future. It's 
like returning to level one. It feels like a distant hope that seems almost unattainable. But what Jesus does is shocking. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he goes on to resurrect Lazarus. What Jesus does is pull this future hope of the resurrection into the present. He's not waiting for a, a purely future time to bring hope, life, and restoration. No, it begins right now. Listen to how New Testament scholar Andreas Kostenberger puts it. He says this, Jesus seeks to shift Martha's focus from an abstract belief in the resurrection in the last day to personal trust in the one who provides in the here and now. New life doesn't happen in the next life. It happens in this life. Jesus isn't just sitting on his hands to make this world a better place, but rather is active in bringing life and a new creation in this moment. Jesus is saying resurrection isn't merely a future event. It's beginning right here, right now. Eternity is now in session. I would contend that today the church still has this Martha-like focus with life after death, a view that resurrection is a future life synonymous with the afterlife, that salvation is often focused on meeting the criteria for going to a good place when we die, rather than becoming good people now. We too, like Martha, can have abstract beliefs in the resurrection. Often it's either an entirely future hope or it's just an event that happened in the past to Jesus. So often our faith can be boiled down to all the good stuff happening in the next life. But this life is not meant to be a time of waiting around for our cosmic insurance policy to finally come through at death. Caroline Lewis explains, Jesus's revelation that he is the resurrection and the life upends any and all of our, all expectations of our future lives as some sort of get out of jail for free card or postponed grace. Rather, the consequences are that resurrection lays claim on our lives today. Really considers is what it would look like for us as the church to, as Kostenberger puts it, shift our focus from an abstract belief in the resurrection in the last days to personal trust in the one who provides in the here and now. Jesus's challenge to Martha is to expand her view of the resurrection from being entirely future to being a personal work in this world here and now. And Jesus is challenging us on this as well. On 23 Fenchurch Street in London stands one of the stupidest buildings ever built. It was nicknamed the walkie-talkie because of its unusual shape, uh, but that's not why it's the stupidest building ever built. What the architect didn't take into account was that the sun reflected off the curved windows and onto the street. As this uh, diagram from the much-read journal of building performance simulation shows, this caused the building to reflect radiation 15 times higher than what would usually be found on the street. And the result was less than ideal. Businesses had carpet burns and faded paint. A Jaguar was mounted, the car, not the animal. Uh, pedestrians were sweating through their clothes. One journalist even illustrated the severity of the heat by cooking an egg on the street below. One scientist said that it essentially was only London's awful weather and cloud covering that saved people from genuinely being hurt. In the end, shades had to be installed across the building to block the light. This wasn't just a bad building conceptually. It didn't just look bad, but it had real-world consequences due to its conceptual failures. 
And in the same way, not getting the resurrection right doesn't mean we get an abstract concept wrong. It's something that has real world implications for how we live. But I guess that begs the question, if, if the resurrection isn't just a future hope, and if it's not just something that happened to Jesus in the past, then in what way is it significant for our lives today? What does it really mean to follow Jesus who says, I am the resurrection and the life? What does it mean, as Paul says in Romans 8.11, that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in us and gives life to our mortal bodies? What does the resurrection mean now? I would suggest a few things. Firstly, uh, resurrection means that what we do on this earth has significance and value now. Because of the presence and the power of the resurrection, what we do now matters. LifeScience.org has a really uplifting article named Doomsday, Nine Real Ways the Earth Could End. According to the article, the top ways the world could end include asteroid collisions, nuclear war, climate change, robot ascension, and of course, a pandemic. It's not surprising then that millennials are dramatically less inclined to have children, and if they do, dramatically less children. There is a genuine fear that where this world is heading is not great. In fact, there's a growing movement called um, antinatalism, uh, with people of the philosophical view that it's morally wrong to bring children into this forsaken world. Kirk, an antinatalist who was interviewed by the BBC, exclaimed this. This doesn't make any sense to me. To voluntarily put someone who has no needs or wants prior to their conception into this world to suffer and die. And it's not surprising then that epidemiologists are now making connections to uh, hopelessness and the lack of well-being in secular cultures. Because in a secular world, it's hard to frame the significance of what we do when the end of the story is most likely asteroid death. In other words, the ways we see the future greatly impact the ways we live in the present. Likewise, versions of Christian theology that see the world burning up and us getting zapped into heaven bypass the significance of this life. If new creation and resurrection is entirely in the future and God is going to trash this world anyway, then why would what we do in the now matter? But because resurrection is here and now, what we do has lasting significance and it matters. New Testament scholar Tom Wright explains, the point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. What we do now has eternal significance because we have the opportunity to live lives as new creations, a resurrected people that will last into the future. Secondly, I would say it means uh, the resurrection means the transformation of our lives begins now and not later. You know, if you Google search resurrection, there's a lot of literature about the proof of the resurrection and some of the stuff is interesting and has value. Ultimately, the goal of this kind of literature is to convince those outside the church that the resurrection happened. Uh, but here's a better proof of the resurrection. 
the church living transformed and resurrected lives that illustrate the power of God's Spirit. Forget handing out tracts saying, do you know where you go when you die? Let's start living resurrection lives that show that God is making us new right now and anyone can have access to the power to do so. That resurrection begins now means that our resurrected selves or our Christ-like selves are breaking through in this present life. That the power of God in our lives is stronger than our own selfish and destructive tendencies. That we are being made into new creations. We aren't to uh, sit on our hands and say, well, this is just who I am and uh, I said the prayer so God can sort me out when I'm dead. But as Eugene Peterson puts it, we live the Christian life out of a rich tradition of formation by resurrection. Jesus' resurrection provides the energy and conditions by which we walk before the Lord in the land of the living. The resurrection of Jesus creates and then makes available the reality in which we are formed as new creatures in Christ by the Holy Spirit. The resurrection spirit is powerful and can transform our lives and ultimately can and will transform the whole cosmos. Lastly, I would say that um, Jesus being the resurrection means that we can have hope now. We can experience resurrection hope right now when we make the resurrected Christ the object of our hope rather than ourselves or any other person. This doesn't mean we aren't uncertain or anxious about the uncertainties we face in our own lives, but it means we have hope that hope in the one who, ulti- who is ultimately trustworthy and whose uh, plan is infinitely wise and good. That through resurrection, uh, there's this confirmation that there is a God who is both good and powerful, who brings light out of darkness, and who is patiently working out a plan for his glory, our good, and the good of the world. Christian hope means that I stop betting my life on, um, betting my life and happiness on human agency and rest in him, to quote Timothy Keller. We have hope now because we can rest in the goodness and power of a God who is working all things together for our good. Shortly I'm going to pray to end and then we're going to have another beautiful song by Chloe and Isaac. And for me, their music has been such a highlight of these services. And as they sing, I want us to be alive to the lyrics and what God might be saying to you through them. And I ask that you open your heart to what God might be wanting to do in your life. Maybe there's a need for healing in your life. Maybe there's a a deficit of hope in your life. Maybe you're in a dark place and you need God to shine his light on you. Maybe you need a fresh encounter with the resurrected Christ. As we reflect on the song over this kind of awkward digital medium, let's open ourselves to the possibility that God might still want to minister to us. Let's just pray to end. Holy and loving God, May we go today knowing that the risen Christ who brings life is wanting to encounter us right now. May we know that the life that our lives have a purpose and meaning and significance because of the resurrection of Jesus. May we go knowing that the resurrected Christ has the power to transform us into new creations and enable us to live the fullest of lives. And may we go knowing the present hope of Jesus who is good and powerful and trustworthy and is working to bring light out of the darkness. May we rest in this resurrected Christ. Amen.